Welcome back to another episode of Suiting Up Varsity, a podcast dedicated to the sound of the band, the smell of popcorn, the feel of an old letter jacket, the sight of teenagers hoisting trophies high above their heads, and most of all, to the grand history and fantastic stories of Nebraska prep sports. Join us as we look back in time at the great moments from a century plus of Nebraska high school athletics. Today, our time machine lands on Vine Street in Lincoln, at a familiar spot with an unfamiliar name. Certainly, we are visiting the University of Nebraska's Coliseum, home of the state basketball tournament for half a century. But there are a few things that seem different. First, it's Saturday, March 13, 1926, and this is the first tournament to be held at the Coliseum, and the building is brand new. In fact, workers were finishing the basketball floors just five days ago on March 8th, just days before the first games were to tip off. Secondly, no one around here is calling it the Coliseum. That name doesn't seem to have been bestowed yet. So as we enter the south doors, we are welcomed to the university's new field house. We are here for the final game of the largest state basketball tournament in Nebraska history a colossal carnival of 339 teams and 22 classes that the newspapers call the world's greatest tournament. We join over 7,000 other fans packing the building's new bleachers and balconies to watch the last game, the Class A Final, between the two schools which have dominated the early history of basketball in Nebraska. This is the 16th Cornhusker Basketball Championships, and the red and black of Lincoln High, one of the teams we're watching, are already looking for their sixth title. Warming up on the opposite end are the Maroons of Omaha Tech, hoping to take home their fourth state trophy in just the last six years. Over 7,000 fans are packed into the new structure, with Lincoln fans stationed on the west side, celebrating with their band as it plays Lincoln Will Shine Tonight while the Tech faithful in the East Balcony prefer their band's playing of Omaha. The two schools have faced one another for Class A glory twice already. The Lynx's last title came in 1920 with a 25-13 win over Tech. That capped the first decade of the tournament, which saw Lincoln wins in 1914, 1915, 1917, and 1918, all of those over a school just a mile and a half from Tech, Omaha Central. The last title clash between these two teams was just last March, and in that one, Tech solidified its place as the team of the 20s, edging the red and black 13-12 for the Maroons' third title since 1921. Tech had bested Hastings 25-11 in 1923 and slipped by Lincoln University Place 11-9 in 1921. Tech was still called Omaha Commerce in 21, and most of us remember University Place High as the Jackson Cardinals, which is what they became in 1926 when Lincoln annexed the University Place neighborhood around Nebraska Wesleyan. Still, by any name, the Maroons, or Trojans, as they will become known, were the Class A power of the early 1920s. We know through the advantage of history, that this will be Omaha Tech's last state final until 1962, and the last time any Omaha big school plays in the Class A finale until 1935. As we'll learn in our next episode, that wasn't just because of on-the-court ability. There will be a lot of politics mixed in. But first, to the action on the floor that night in 1926. 
Of course, it'll be slower than we're used to. We are still 20 plus years away from the wide adoption of the jump shot technique and about 10 years from the elimination of the jump ball after every made basket. Still, there will be plenty of fine athletes running the brand new floorboards of the Fieldhouse, including the two captains, Dutch Whitty of Lincoln High and Irv Nelson of Omaha Tech. Scoring is slow as the game begins. Both teams had shown they had championship-level defenses in the semis. Lincoln High didn't allow York any breathing room in a 14-3 win, while Tech held Hastings without a basket in the first half of a 20-12 triumph. Hastings, with All-Stater George Shively and big man Roy Bassett, had pulled the biggest upset of the bracket in knocking off Creighton Prep in the opening round of 16. Tempers flared in that Hastings Tech semi, and a Hastings guard was ejected for throwing a punch. Uncle Jimmy Husker, a cartoon character who appeared in the Lincoln Star throughout the tourney to advertise McGee's fashion headquarters, had a little fun at that Tiger's expense. I'm not exactly sure what clientele Uncle Jimmy was supposed to appeal to. His country cousin act, saying things like, Gee, those semi-finales were simply rip-roaring and I'll be leaving on that critter of a train, seem more likely to have entertained Lincolnites than their small school visitors. Back in the field house for the final, Omaha Tech has found its offensive rhythm and leads high 12-3 at halftime. It's starting to get late on Saturday night. It's a good thing that railroads like the Northwestern to Fremont had announced special 7.30 a.m. Sunday morning trains so that teams and spectators could stay in town for the nighttime finale. Of course, this isn't the first state final of the day. It's the 22nd. One reason it is getting so late is that the winning and losing captains of all 21 other classes were honored on the court before this game, with much picture-taking and pronouncements. The organizers of this colossal tournament can be forgiven for excessive celebrations, leading them to be behind schedule, considering the long path it took to bring this tournament into being. That path stretches back to 1925, when the State Athletic Association first instituted qualifying tournaments for the state championships. Pundits like the legendary Greg McBride and the majority of the schools found this system lacking. The schools saw the number of teams eligible to play in Lincoln fall from over 200 in the early 20s uh, in up to 16 classes, down to just 75 in five classes in 1925. McBride thought the districts had watered down the field, leaving too many good teams home. Even the qualifiers must have agreed, as 21 of the 96 teams eligible to play in Lincoln in 1925 simply stayed home and forfeited their slots in the bracket, making their displeasure for the process evident. McBride, writing in both the Lincoln and Omaha papers of the day, became the chief cheerleader for a return to the all-comers rules of early tournaments. On January 10, as Lincoln High was beating Omaha Tech at home 16-10 to mark themselves as an early season favorite, the NHSAA Board of Control was counting ballots in a statewide referendum to decide how the tournament would be designed. 343 of the possible 416 ballots were returned to the state organization, and the schools chose by a 2-to-1 margin to return to the all-comers tournament, leading to delight from McBride, who hated the districts, and kicking into high gear the preparations by the university to host the biggest state basketball tournament that Nebraska, and maybe the nation, would ever see. 
The politics of the decision are murky at best when reading the old papers, but it seems to have broken on classic Omaha versus the rest lines. That's interesting, of course, because we would assume the Omaha district would be the one likely to leave a good team or two home. It seems the politics were a little more complicated than that, though, and we'll get to them down the line. No matter the politics, the university mobilized to run the gigantic tournament. It is obvious that leaders of dear old NU saw the basketball tournament as an important part of recruiting students and supporters for their mission. Athletic Director H.D. Gish quickly made announcements that the NU Fieldhouse construction would be done in time to host the hundreds of players and thousands of fans headed for Lincoln in March. Gish announced that NU would offer a series of tours and programs to educate, entertain, and most importantly, recruit the players and other students visiting Lincoln. Monetarily, the university would support the tournament by underwriting the rail and Pullman expenses, all of them, for all the teams. That's quite an investment. Beyond the university's efforts, the regular season went on. Creighton Prep traveled to Lincoln and handled the bigger shopkeepers of Havelock, putting themselves in the state title discussion. But then Omaha Tech walloped Prep, 33-15, making it look like Tech and High again were the big boys. Interestingly, in a practice common at the time, Prep practiced at Omaha Tech the day before the game. The Omaha papers at the time often reported on teams practicing on an opposing team's floor before a game. It made sense because the floors were often of very different dimensions, sometimes varying by 10 to 15 feet in length and width. That would be true even at the state tournament, where floors beyond the Coliseum would be needed to stage the 317 games in three days that the tournament would end up requiring. Classes A through D would be played at the new field house and its three courts. Eight other courts would be utilized, one at the armory north of campus, another at the downtown YMCA, two at Whittier Junior High across Antelope Creek from campus, two more at Lincoln High, and one more at Bancroft School, which was part of the university's training school at 14th and Y. An extra court would eventually be added out east at the Ag School. As February began, McBride was featuring teams around the state and continuing to profess his belief that the larger, open tournament would create more enthusiasm for the game of basketball around the state and, in turn, better play. He also reported that many cities and colleges around the state were planning regional tournaments to serve as preliminaries to prepare teams for state. Brackets were being drawn up in Wayne, Hastings, Fremont, Kearney, Falls City, Shadron, and Lincoln, as well as other smaller county tourneys. McBride wrote that, quote, Interest in Nebraska high school basketball was increased this year with the return of one central state tournament, unquote. There may have been more fans coming out to the games, but there were also dangers in doing so. The papers reported on February 20th that a Mr. G.L. Rogers of Potter, Nebraska was injured at the conclusion of a Potter Coyotes game in Sydney when the timekeeper's gun was fired near his ear at the conclusion of a period. That same day, Creighton Prep traveled to Lincoln and upset Lincoln High 19-17 on a couple free throws by a lad named Strawhacker, further complicating the state championship prediction business. Back at the university, entries for the tournament were starting to arrive through the mail. The first was from Cairo High School, which in in addition to putting their own twist on pronouncing their Egyptian-inspired name, was using an unfortunate Native American nickname which the school would keep until it closed in 1967. 
By February 21, 13 teams had entered, but the Lincoln Chamber of Commerce had heard from 200 schools looking for hotel rooms. NU Athletic Director Gish predicted a field between 275 and 300 teams, but said they were prepared for up to 320. The finer details were starting to be taken care of, including the 48 basketballs needed and the 21 loving cups for the winners below Class A. The top class winner would receive a golden basketball. By February 25, there were 55 entries in, and the preliminary college and county tournaments were getting started. McBride expected those results to factor in heavily when the NHSAA committee sat down to classify the teams. At the same time, McBride was reviewing the previous 15 tournaments one by one each day in the papers to build enthusiasm. As March arrived, results from around the state continued to roll in, and the hunt for a tournament favorite only gets murkier. Lincoln High loses again, this time at Omaha Central. Prep travels to Beatrice and barely survives on a last-second hope shot. Hastings loses to Lincoln High one night but beats Havelock the next. Nebraska Deaf surprises Plattsmouth, and Columbus gets a big surprise, losing to tiny Surprise High School from Butler County. Gothenburg won the Kearney Tournament. West Point won up at Wayne. Shadron Prep upset an unbeaten Shadron team in the Northwest. And Clay County edged Sutton for the Clay County title. Clay Center edged Sutton, that is. And Omaha South traveled all the way to Grand Island and beat the Islanders 28-22. It was becoming obvious that picking a winner was going to be difficult for McBride or anyone else. But that pales in comparison to the seating work that would have to be done by the NHSA three-man Board of Control Committee charged with that task. The plan was for those three men to sit down for one evening and place all the teams in a bracket and seed those brackets. By March 4, there were 338 teams entered. The committee members, H.B. Simon of Norfolk, A.M. Nelson of Fairbury, and W.J. Bram of North Platte faced a task that had taken deep into the night for tournaments with far fewer teams entered. That committee was tasked with taking five different criteria into consideration when they seeded the teams. And remember, seeding involves which classes are they going to be in. Number one, they looked at season record. Number two, they looked at size of the city the school came from. That's interesting because many modern reclassification ideas consider the size of a community that maybe a parochial school is in instead of only their student count. Number three, number of boys in the high school. Number four, number of veterans on the team. Number five, previous tournament experience. Obviously, uh, in our modern system, we only consider one of those five criteria when we put people into classes, teams into classes. McBride was predicting more evenly matched contests in the brackets after the districts of 1925 had created what McBride considered an uneven field. He was expecting better play, especially, he said, in classes B, C, D, and E. On March 6th, McBride reported that seating was finally finished in the early, early hours of Saturday morning. The first thing that got his attention was that two traditional Class A teams, Geneva and Lincoln University Place, had been placed in the Class B bracket. He predicted the best B battles ever and saw several teams in C, D, and E that he thought could also play in B. He noted other bracket surprises. 
Despite the regional tourney loss to Shadron Prep, it was Shadron High that got the Class A nod, while the Junior Eagles were placed in B. The Cardinals' two regular season wins over their cross-down rivals were cited. North Platte, which was runner-up to Gothenburg and Kearney, got the Class A nod over the Swedes, who would be two men short at the tournament, including their high scorer, a fellow named Dale, because those two had turned 21 after the regional and become ineligible. Eligibility rules in 1926 could change in the season. If you turn 21 during the season, uh, the day before a game, you were ineligible. If you didn't turn 21 till the day after the state championship game, you were eligible the whole way through. Uh, McBride also noticed that Norfolk had been placed all the way down in Class C. And remember, the Norfolk superintendent was one of the uh, three-man committee seating the teams. And finally, the late entry attempted by Kimball was rejected by the Board of Control. Scores of preparatory, tur- preparatory tournaments were still trickling in. Lincoln High won the Wesleyan tournament as expected. A couple years later, they'd actually be banned from that tourney because they so dominated it every year. Osceola was the York County champ, though the papers noted that York High did not participate. Blue Hill won the Webster County, and the Hebron Academy Knights captured the Thayer County Cup. In Franklin County, the Bloomington Wampus Cats took the crown with a tight 7-6 triumph over the Napanee Chiefs. Teams still had final practices, of course, and they had decisions to make. Rosters had to be cut to eight players, though several Omaha teams announced they would bring their full squads down for the experience, even if they couldn't all suit up. And teams had to decide when they would arrive in Lincoln. Many small schools were planning to arrive Wednesday night to allow their boys to acclimate to the big city. Several Omaha schools were coming down Thursday morning, while Omaha Central and Omaha South would wait to arrive in the afternoon before their first games. Schools received instructions to report to the University Armory building to check in for the tournament, possibly because the final touches to the fieldhouse were still in progress as teams got to Lincoln. On March 8th, an editorial headlined, The World's Greatest Tournament, uh, in the Lincoln Star pointed out that Nebraska was an early pioneer in in the holding of a statewide basketball tournament. The paper praised the return of the Central Tournament over last year's district setup and smaller state tournament and noted that it would be a chance for 3,000 boys from all over the state to get a close-up look at the university and see if they saw a path for themselves there. The star called on the people of Lincoln to make the stay of the boys most pleasant. The same day, it was reported that the basketball courts were still being installed, as well as large canvas curtains that would separate the courts when multiple games were being played simultaneously. University athletic manager John Selleck announced that the building would hold 5,000 for those three game sessions and about 8,500 for the finals. On March 9th, McBride wrote that he thought the new tourney with no districts was more wide open. He thought last year that Tech and High had sailed through their districts and were obvious favorites as the state tournament began. This year, that isn't the case. He pointed out to teams coming out of nowhere, like state champion Shelton in 1919 or state finalists Crete and Sutton in 1922. He was hoping for that kind of result in 26. The next day, those canvas curtains were in place, and all nine floors were ready to go. NU announced that in order to give all teams a fair shake, no school would be allowed to practice on any of the tournament hardwoods. Each of those floors had its own unique dimension. 
Class A would occupy the primary Colosseum floor, called Number 1, which was a very modern 90 feet by 50 feet. The other two floors in the field house were a bit smaller. Number 2 was 86 by 50, and Number 3 was 84 by 47. The court in the armory was 84 by 45, but a second gym floor in the armory's chapel was only 60 by 40. The floor at Bancroft School, then a junior high on 14th Street for kids living on the north edge of campus, measured 63 by 39. Across the creek from NU at Whittier Junior High, Whittier Junior High, by the way, was built in 1923 as one of the first buildings in the entire nation designed specifically to serve junior high students. And of course, it still stands. uh, You can see it as you go down Antelope Parkway today. Uh, University has offices in there. Uh, But Whittier Junior High had two identical 75 by 46 foot courts. The final two tourney venues were small. There was a 65 by 40 foot floor at the Lincoln YMCA and a tiny, almost square, 55 foot by 45 foot playing surface on the East Agricultural Campus. Many of the accounts of the tourney games that we have available to us today were provided by student journalists. Professor M.M. Fogg and his NU journalism students would cover all the games and provide reports for local papers throughout the state. Players, sponsors, and officials were given red and white tournament buttons for admittance, and there were floor managers to run each tournament site. In Lincoln, Owen Frank, director of officiating for the tournament, gathered over 100 officials in the field house for a meeting. Frank was an assistant basketball coach at NU. The officials were Cornhusker varsity basketball players, members of UNL's varsity basketball coaching class, and a few Lincoln-based refs. All games were to be worked under the dual officiating system with a referee and umpire assigned. In the papers, NU officials were warning fans not to purchase fraudulent season tickets, which were evidently being hawked by con men claiming they would work throughout the tournament. The only official tickets, NU said, were for one for each day. Uh, Those same papers also tell us that girls' basketball was being played in Nebraska in 1926, even without a statewide festival championship tournament. The Beaver City girls were pictured in the star to celebrate their 9-3 season. As we will find out later, girls' basketball will take a big setback in Nebraska in the months after this tournament. The tournament organizers had much more planned for this week in March than just basketball. It was obvious that the university and the city of Lincoln uh, saw this as a great recruiting opportunity to show future students all they had to offer. On Thursday, as first-round games were being played, teams were also to have their pictures taken, both photographs and film. In the afternoon of day one, Coach Henry Schulte would be holding track and field training sessions with his varsity athletes for the coaches and prepsters to watch. On Friday, teams could take tours of city campus, agricultural campus, and the state capitol building. Later on Friday, the YMCA would be presenting the details of its popular high Y program, and on Friday night, the NU freshmen would be performing skits and stunts at the Social Sciences Auditorium. Finally, Saturday night after the championship games were finished up, the teams would gather at a downtown theater for talks by UNL Chancellor Samuel Avery, 1925 NU football captain Ed Weir of Superior, 1926 NU football captain Lonnie Steiner of Hastings, and Dr. George Condra of the university's Conservation and Survey Department. 
Now, Dr. Condra's inclusion in the program seems a bit random. What does conservation and survey have to do with basketball tournaments or even prospective students? Until you know that he had been the one taking the pictures and primitive motion pictures of the teams, and in fact had been taking these pictures and motion pictures of Nebraska since 1904, Condra, on that Saturday night, would show the, the gathered players his film of Nebraska's 17-0 season-ending win over mighty Notre Dame the previous fall. He'd also share films of Nebraska pep rallies and of freshman campus events like initiation and the new student Olympics, as well as film of the arrival and check-in of these very high school basketball teams from just two days before on Thursday. I imagine many of the youngsters in the audience were seeing themselves on film for the first time in their lives in what amounted to a great advertisement for the university. Hey kid, look at the modern wonders you can be a part of at the University of Nebraska. Once I read about this film of the 1926 tournament teams, I started to search for them, obviously. The UNL library sent me to the Nebraska Historical Society. I spent time looking through the amazing digital archives at history.nebraska.gov, there is a collection of Dr. Condor's photographs there, but nothing from the 1926 tourney, and no film at all. So, I contacted the Historical Society. Paul Icelevel, the curator of audiovisual collections, got right back to me. But alas, the news was not good. He wrote, It's true that George Condra shot loads of motion picture film all around the state, starting as early as 1904. As far as we know, none of that footage has survived. It would have been on unstable nitrate film base, and over the years was not stored properly. Legend has it that a cache of his films was discovered at the University of Nebraska, but was all destroyed due to its advanced deterioration. Unless the film you're looking for was not in that cache, it's highly unlikely it survived. Sorry. My response? Bummer. If there's no archival film of those 338 teams arriving at the world's largest basketball tournament in 1926, at least we do have the words of the event's number one cheerleader, Greg McBride. As games were beginning Thursday morning, McBride described the scene in Lincoln Wednesday as all those teams and coaches and fans started arriving on the Nebraska campus. Quote, A riot of colors brightened the capital city streets Wednesday afternoon as the visiting athletes wearing the sweaters of their high schools began pouring into the city. The orange and black of Crawford from the northwest was mingled with the red and white of Falls City in the southeast. The blue and gold of Beaver City in the southwest clashed with the maroon and white of South Sioux City in the northeast. My visualization of that great scene is disturbed only by the mention of Falls City Tigers wearing red and white. Red and white? It's possible, of course, that McBride got crossed up. It's also possible that Fall City had not yet settled on its now traditional orange and black palette. Anyone from the southeast have any guidance for me there? I lean towards believing McBride here, as he may have been working on that column as he watched Fall City and David City play the tournament's first game, a Class C battle, on the Coliseum's main floor. The scouts got the best of the Tigers, no matter the color scheme, 26-21, and the carnival was underway. Of course, even the modern nicknames I'm using today may not have been in use in 1926. I find a couple familiar monikers in the newspapers. South was called the Packers when they beat Grand Island 18-15 in a Class A opener, and Grand Island was referred to as the Islanders. 
G.I., though, was also called the Third City Gang, and that type of naming is actually more common during the 20s. I see Hastings referred to as the Adams County Tossers, but never the Tigers. Creighton Prep was the Prepsters, not the Blue Jays or even the Hilltoppers, as will be common in the 30s and 40s. Lincoln High was the Red and Black, or the Brownies, for Coach William Brown. Nebraska City was called the Nebs, and Omaha Tech was the Maroons. Color use was common. Omaha Central was the Purples, not the Eagles. Suburban Lincolns, Havelock High athletes, officially to become the Boilermakers later, were called the Shopkeepers in 1926 in a pretty cool nod to the area's downtown strip, which one can still drive through today. A couple of the nicknames are better off in the dust bend of history, though, like the Carroll Redskins and the Nebraska School of the Deaf Mutes. But enough color and pageantry. Let's find out who won the games and took home those silver loving cups. The 22 final games were all played Saturday on those far-flung courts. Luckily, we have reports from those NU journalism students for each and every game. By the end of the tournament, those J students would file 181,000 words to be used in 271 different local papers throughout the state. We'll run through all 22 championship games in a minute, but first, let's take a little break. As always, I want to encourage people uh, next time they're in Lincoln to get to the Nebraska High School Hall of Fame. Just a great experience. Uh, new things every time you go in there, things for people of all ages. You know, there are great old artifacts and pictures uh, for people like me to look at, whereas my kids love the the video games uh, where they can uh, team up to play volleyball or uh, throw a football. Uh, Just a lot of fun at the the, uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, Usually open from 10 to 4 on weekdays. Always a good idea to call ahead as they kind of change their days of the week throughout the year. But but while you're planning your trip to Lincoln, give them a call and and work that in. It's right down by the Haymarket uh, Baseball and Softball Complex, and it's just a great part of Nebraska high school sports history. All right, here we go. We're going to run through all 26 uh, class championship games from the world's largest basketball tournament, starting with the smallest, Class V. In Class V, the champion was Max. In a game played at the YMCA, they rallied late to overcome a Lehigh lead. In Class U, Dwight used its inside game to outscore Liberty's long bombing strategy to win 15-7. In Class T, the game went nuts in the second half as everyone was dropping in baskets. Virginia prevailed in a wild one, 25-22 over Henderson. In Class S, it was Murdoch rallying from a six-point halftime deficit uh, but falling just short to Cortland, 16-14. to Class R was a rout, with Philly dominating Barniston 24-3. A lad named Perky scored 10 for the winners. In Class Q, we see a bit of a controversy. Uh, Bennett and Deschler played on Friday in the semifinal, with Deschler being declared the winner, but Bennett protested the end of the game to the Board of Control. The Board of Control allowed that protest and forced Deschler to come back and play an overtime against Bennett on Saturday afternoon. The Dragons still prevailed, winning 7-2, so I'm not sure exactly (laughs) how close this game was. Then they won a seesaw game against the Plymouth Pilgrims 11-8 for the Class Q Loving Cup. 
in Class P, Chester and Rockaby went to double overtime. Dry and Stroh scored in the extra period to clinch the Chester 14-9 win. Where's Rockaby? I can't even find it on a map. Class O, the Borden brothers did all the scoring for Atlanta as they beat Riverton 11-9. In Class N, Barta was the big scorer for Ohio as they pulled away late to beat Trumbull 14-9. In Class M, it was mascot of Harlan County, winning easily over Pilger 17-10. In Class L, Sumner held off a late Fairmont rally to hold on for a 10-9 win. In Class K, Wymere and Booth scored all of Douglas's points in a 15-14 win over Firth. In Class J, it was the story of an injury, um, where Sprague Martell's big man, Fraun, turned an ankle in the first minutes of the game. Greenwood then controlled the action and won the title 12-5, shutting out SM in the second half. The Class I final was a high-scoring affair with Bassett outgunning Alma 26-23. The Rock County boys trailed 23-14 entering the final quarter at the Armory, but unleashed a 12-point fourth-quarter barrage while shutting out the Cardinals to claim the hardware. A second-quarter injury to guard Wallace doomed North Bend in Class H as Hebron Academy extended its lead when he left the game and won 19-13. In Class G, Papillion was a small town, not a suburb of 1926, and the Monarchs won Class G with a 21-15 win over Oakdale. Meade ran out to a 10-0 lead in Class F and then rode that to an 18-8 win over Wilbur. In Class E, the three McConaughey brothers keyed the Aggies of Curtis to a 16-12 win over Reynolds, scoring all of the Westerners' points. Class D opened the Saturday evening program at the Fieldhouse. Nelson won the cup by shutting down the Milford inside game uh, that had allowed the Eagles to take an early lead. The Tigers prevailed 15-11. In Class C, a Lindley bucket with just two seconds remaining pushed Wahoo to the Class C title over 1925 Class B champion St. Paul. Lindley converted an offensive rebound for the winner. Both schools struggled to hit from the outside, so it wasn't surprising that an offensive board led to what the Lincoln paper called Lindley's million-dollar toss in the final moments. Indianola led early versus Columbus in the Class B final. Dutcher and Spalding keyed the action early for the Indians, and they led 15-12 at half. A basket from Keating finally gives Columbus the lead in the third quarter. Nicolite hits one from deep behind the free throw ring for the clincher, and it was Columbus 26-20. Keating had 12 for Columbus. And finally, we are ready to return where we started, the Class A final between Lincoln High and Omaha Tech. Remember that it looked early uh, like the Texters would make this a laugher, leading 12-3 at the half. In fact, Lincoln High didn't score a field goal in that half, just three charity tosses. Tech's plan was to focus its defense on high-star Dutch Witty, and through two quarters, that plan had been golden. Coach Brown and his Capital City crew, though, made adjustments at the half and started to climb back into the game. Lincoln had turned to the long shot and narrowed the score to 13-12. to The final quarter was played in a riot of noise, according to McBride. First, 
Tech star Irv Nelson hit a long one of his own to stretch the lead back to 15 to 12. Then Witty finally got loose and hit a long one that McBride wrote, quote, zipped through the netting as if it had been pulled by a string to close it to 15-14. Tech then went into its stall game, and when the Lynx extended their defense, the Maroons slipped big man pre-roast behind the defense with under a minute left for the clincher. Tech won 17-14, its fourth title in six years, in front of a crowd McBride counted at over 7,000. McBride describes a post-game photo with the Class A team captains, Board of Control members, and other basketball bigwigs. I assume that this beauty of a picture has been lost to history, just like all the film taken by Dr. Condra, but I'm going to keep my eyes out. Now, that should be the end of our story. The basketball was over, the pictures were taken, stars Woody and Nelson had shaken hands, and the maroon and white had carried home that beautiful golden basketball. But this is where the politics got revved up. The principals and superintendents would dominate the sports pages for the next days as the future of state tournaments in Nebraska. Where will they be held? Who will participate? And unbelievably, will they even be staged? Is debated. Pronouncements, accusations, hidden motives will be front and center when we continue our story next time on Suiting Up Varsity. Until then, follow us on Twitter where our handle is at SuitUpVarsity. We are currently debating the greatest athletes of all time at various schools. Get your two cents in, and maybe we can dig up some pictures of your favorite athlete or team. We hope to hear from you soon. Also, if you like this podcast, take time to rate us on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. It helps others find our show. Or share one of our episodes on Twitter or Facebook or other social media. Help other Nebraska sports fans find our podcast. This has been Suiting Up Varsity, Episode 25, written and produced by me, Greg Mays, technical and research assistance by Tate Mays, helpful audio advice and encouragement from Chris Shukai, and as always, dedicated to Jerry Mathers, the godfather of Nebraska high school sports history and the inspiration for this podcast. Suiting Up Varsity is the anchor show of the Nebraska Varsity Network, copyright 2019.